Revelation chapter 2 from verse 6 right through to the end of the chapter, to the end of the book, to the end of the whole Bible, is a section which can probably best be summarized by one word, come. And we'll look at that very shortly. Revelation chapter 22 verses 6 to 21 is an epilogue to the whole of the book of Revelation just like the first three verses in chapter 1 are an introduction verses 6 to 21 at the end of of the book chapter 22 are another bookend to this book in films we see at the start we see the introduction with the names of the main actors the title of the film and with some scenery and music to set the tone for the film. And at the end, there's an epilogue, after which we get the credits and so on. So the idea of introduction and ending are familiar to all forms of media, and especially ancient letters like this one that we have. This epilogue provides closure to the whole of the message which has gone before it. And in this closing section, we see several things. Before we go into the details of the main things, I'd like us to to focus on a few notices or warnings firstly. If you've been to a wedding reception in recent years, you'll probably notice that one of the first things that happens once you're all sat down is that somebody stands up and gives a, a health and safety announcement and points to the fire exits, warnings in a sense and and advice. And here we have the same in Revelation chapter 22. First of all, we have the warning, we have the direction to worship God, not his messengers. Although in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, we see that John fell down at the, the feet of Jesus himself, and worshipped him. Well, here at the end of Revelation chapter in tw- chapter 22, we see that John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. Now, whether he was confused or whether he didn't know that he ought not to or whatever, we don't know. But the angel said to him not to do so, to worship only God, that he himself was only a servant of God, just like John was a servant of God. Just like all God's people are his servants. This angel who had such a special role towards the end of this book was simply a servant. Too often we're tempted to venerate or idolize angels, saints, pastors or godly men and women. And we put them on a different level. Some of them. But we oughtn't to do that. We are all God's servants. The angel is saying here that even the angels are just God's servants like the rest of us. We ought only to worship God. And remember that although the angels are sinless, we are only saved sinners. And anything that we are is only by God's grace. And we ought not to worship or idolize anyone or anything We're told in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 2, that we ought not to 
idolize or worship or make images of anything in the heavens or on the earth. Even the best Christians, the best Bible teachers, pastors, evangelists, those who serve in various different forms of ministry are only God's servants who look forward to, to seeing and hearing God say to them, well done, good and faithful servants. So, a warning, we oughtn't to worship angels, saints, pastors, or anyone else. Second, the, this prophecy is true. In ancient literature, especially in prophetic literature, just like in the book of Daniel and, and other literature outside of the Bible, the truth of what was said to be in it, in a message, was emphasized by being said to be true. This word is true. And John is described here, not as an apostle, which he is, one of the 12 original apostles, but he's described here as a prophet. And he is both. But the point here is that he has received the prophecy of God's word. And in receiving God's word, in that sense, he is following in the line of how God has given his inspired word, the scriptures, through his prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and others. And he is simply following in that vein. Those who are sent, those who, are, who follow on later, those who are commissioned by God and empowered by God to take his word, are not apostles in the same sense as the original 12 who walked with Jesus and saw him are eyewitnesses. Some people prefer to use the, the term apostle with a small a. Um, some denominations prefer not to use it. Um, but the point is that John here is an apostle and a prophet and he is giving us God's word and this prophecy is true, we're told. In verse 7. But we are told and warned in verses 18 to 19 that we ought not to take away from the words of this book. These are strong words of rebuke, rebuke which shouldn't necessarily lead us to, to be interpreted as somebody losing their salvation, losing their place, or losing a share in the, the tree of life or the city of God, the New Jerusalem is not that they have secured it and then lost it. But it's simply a way of saying that they will have no share in it. The share which they could have had will be denied to them. Those who oppose God, he will oppose. Those who reject him, oppose him will not have a share in eternal blessing. And this is a significant warning that we ought not to add or take away from the words of this book. By extension, we could say that about the whole Bible. And too often today, we have people who are adding or taking away from the gospel. They're taking parts of God's word out because they don't like them. They're adding other messages in because they don't like what's there. The prosperity gospel, 
is a different gospel. People are saying that you can have all the blessings that God wants for you here and now. When really the blessings that God has for us, we have abundant blessings now, but the fullness of them is still to come. It's not just that they got the timing wrong about the fullness of God's blessings of prosperity for us and blessing on us. It's that they have got the motivation wrong. They've got worldliness in their hearts and they're simply seeing the gospel as a way to to try and secure all that they want here and now. They don't want to be servants of God. They don't want to obediently follow. They don't want to patiently wait. We mustn't tinker with the truths of Scripture to suit our own fallen understanding or sinful tendencies. We need to be careful how we handle God's Word. We might be we might be tempted to, to be a little bit afraid of how do we handle it. But as long as we focus on the core issues and stand firmly on those, we're safe. We cannot change the fact that we're justified by faith instead of works. We cannot change that God is triune and yet one God. We cannot change certain things. These things are clear throughout the Bible. Other things which we're not sure on or find it hard to understand, those things we don't have to hold on to too tightly. Let's hold on firmly to the core truths and things which are secondary or tertiary matters. Let's not put them up front. Let's not make a big thing out of a small thing. Let's not say that something is the way we understand it when it's a difficult thing to understand. Because we might be adding or taking away from God's word. Let's focus on the essentials most of all. Let's stand firmly on them. The meat, the main message though, in in this chapter, there are two things. Firstly, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. In Revelation 1, verse 1, the very start of the book, we read something similar. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. These things will soon take place. What will happen soon? We can ask, well, what is it that will happen soon? What are we being told will happen soon? Is it that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the signs or symbols, the seven bowls, the fall of Babylon, the final battle, that these things will soon begin to happen? That history will start with the seven seals and then go on to the seven trumpets and go on and so on? Is the book of Revelation recording human history sequentially? And it will start soon. Well, that's one view, but it's not the view that we take or we've taken here as we've gone through Revelation. 
the view we've taken is that the the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the signs and so on are different perspectives on the same human history. That these things are already happening. They were already happening at the time that John received his revelation. They weren't going to happen or start soon. They were already happening. The seven churches were struggling with the same issues that that were spoken of. The battle between good and evil, the God's wrath on the world, the, the fallenness of this world. These things have been experienced not simply across the New Testament era, but also to some extent across the whole of the history since the fall, the history of mankind. And yet there is a sense in which some of these things were going to happen there are nuances that don't neatly fit into any particular interpretation, especially when it comes to the the fall of Babylon and the final battle that seem to have some extent of already happening, but some extent are still to come. And yet there's a sense in which what has been referred to as what will happen soon is about Christ's return which is going to happen soon some think that verse 6 is not so much part of the epilogue but even as the NLT has that it is part of the previous section of the bride of Christ coming the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven that it is linked more to do with the, the, the time when the Lord will come again when there will be no more pain, no more suffering while some of the events described in Revelation seem to apply more to the very last days there's a real sense in which the second coming is what is in mind here when John is told that these things will happen soon it's likely that it's a bit of both the things that were foretold, the seals and trumpets and so on, but the focus seems to be on the Lord coming soon. In the very next verse, verse 7, we're told, look, I am coming soon. And later on in verse 12, the same, look, I am coming soon. And in verse 20, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Christ is coming soon. How soon is soon? Well, when a wife asks her husband when he's going to finish off the DIY project he started, he often replies by saying, I'll finish it soon. But it can seem like forever before it ends up being finished. Or someone promises that something will be done soon, and yet it seems to be on the long finger, not likely to happen at all anytime soon. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm coming again soon? Well, we know it's been about 2,000 years already. So in terms of time, it's much longer than a delayed DIY project. And we know that there's more time needed still until the last of the nations, the last of the peoples, 
on this earth until the gospel has gone out to all nations, then the end will come at some point. But how do we understand sin? There's a few things that we must bear in mind. Firstly, we mustn't forget this one thing, dear friends, as Peter tells us. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't measure time like we measure time. Second, in terms of eternity, a few thousand years is still soon. Time is relative. And in terms of eternity ahead, a few thousand years is still very, very, very soon. Very small amount of time. But third, and I think this is the most important, there's a sense in which soon refers not so much to the passage of time, but to the expectancy that which the word fosters in our hearts. I am coming soon. Well, if you're looking forward to the person coming, you have a heart attitude of longing for them to come. When a husband or wife has been working away abroad or for quite some time and they're returning home, while they're on the way, they might say, I'll be there soon. And those at home have an attitude of expectancy. They're looking forward to the person's arrival. They've got things prepared. They're looking to see their loved one soon. They're, they're looking forward to welcoming them to being restored in the same place at the same time with them. The word soon conveys so much more than simply a period of time. It conveys an attitude of expectancy, an attitude of longing. In this sense, <clears throat> commentator Torrance says, the New Testament does not think of the difference between between the presence of Christ here and now and his second advent so much in terms of a passage of time as the difference between the veiled and the unveiled as the difference between him not being here and being here it's the difference of the reality not so much the time that it takes for that reality to change it's the difference where we are expecting and hoping for when the person is with us, not focusing on the delay in terms of time. If we remember Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25 of the ten young women, the ten young virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom, five of them were ready and five of them weren't. Five of them had enough oil in their lamps and five of them didn't. The five who were ready had an attitude of expectation an attitude of preparation. The five who didn't, <clears throat> they weren't really looking forward to the bridegroom coming. But those who were prepared, they were expectant, they were longing, they were making sure everything was ready. They had a different attitude. And so too, the question is, do we have an attitude of longing for Jesus to come again? Or do we have a lurking sense of fear or doubt or apprehension? Do we have a fear that when he returns that 
He might not have a smile on his face towards us. He might not come to us with a, a welcome. But he might have a frown on his face. That we might not be on the right side of him. That when he comes again, do we have a sense of fear or doubt? That he's not coming for us. He's not coming to welcome us into eternity. But we're those who, even though we don't want to think about it, might be those who are going to a lost eternity. When Jesus comes to his people who are expecting him, who are longing for him to come soon, there is a restoration, there is joy. There will be There'll be such a, a, a joyful occasion that the bride and the bridegroom, the church and Christ united, that wedding feast of the Lamb. What a wonderful occasion. And we look forward to that without fear if our sins have been washed clean. But those who are still in their sin, those who have not been forgiven, those who have not trusted in Christ, those who have not been reconciled to God through faith in him, they're not wanting Christ to come soon. They don't have that expectancy, that longing. And yet, we can change that simply by praying in our hearts, Lord, forgive me my sins. Lord, Father God, I commit my life to you. Forgive me my sins. Accept me as a child. Accept me by your grace and your mercy based on what Jesus has done on the cross. We commit our lives to him. We turn from sin and we turn towards God, trusting in Jesus. And then, like the tax collector in the temple, he went home justified, Jesus tells us, just praying a simple prayer. We can go from fearing or being apprehensive about Jesus coming to longing for him to come simply by having turned to God through faith in Christ. We may have come from a religious background. We may be trusting in our church, what ceremonies we've, sacraments or whatever we have gone through. Some people trust that they went forward at, a, at an evangelistic crusade or meeting and said a prayer. But saying the words is not the same as saying them from the heart. Some people are trusting that they're good people compared to others. And almost everybody is better than somebody. But none of us are as good as the standard of Jesus. If you have a conscience that has a nagging doubt that you're right with God, or even a conscience that is shouting at you that there's something wrong, and simply trust in Jesus. He is longing for us to come to him. And yet he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And so the delay is so that more people can come to him before he comes to us. The gospel call goes out to all. We see here in in Revelation chapter 22 that 
There are a number of things in this gospel call that we see here in this chapter. Firstly, we have a plight. We will all be judged for what we have done. It's hard to reconcile works and faith. Justified by faith, but we're going to be judged by our works. Works will be the basis of separating the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, as Jesus says, on the evidence of their works. In the same chapter that Jesus spoke about the the ten uh, young women, he also speaks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then he condemns those who did not do good works, saying, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Paul is clear too that God will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honour and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. Here in Revelation chapter 22, we read, Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshippers, and all who love to live a lie. Being outside the city is a way of saying that they will not be part of the new Jerusalem. They will not be God's people with God forever, but have to suffer a lost eternity. And yet, when we are judged by our works on that day, well, Paul concludes in Romans 3.23 that everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. How can we stand before him on that day? The solution is that we can have our robes washed through faith in Jesus. There is a solution. We can stand righteously before him. We can stand before him glorified on that day because all who come to him have their sins forgiven, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death on the cross, he shed his blood on the cross. He died for our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven, washed away when we place our faith in him. But more than that, we don't just stand as those who have been forgiven before God. His grace is bigger than that. We stand with as those whose sinful works have been replaced by righteous works in the Spirit. So now there's no condemnation to those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. We can walk in the spirit. We can produce the fruit of the spirit. We will have the evidence that we are Christ's on that day. That will identify us as his people. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. We don't just have our dirty linen taken away. We are given fresh linen instead. We don't simply have our sinful works forgiven. We are given the good works empowered by the Spirit that will be the evidence that we are Christ's on that day. So we have nothing to fear on the judgment day. By God's grace, we are freed from condemnation and we look forward to his coming with joy. And as we look forward, we also call to others. The Spirit and the Church call everyone to accept the Gospel, God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. These are some of the loveliest words in the, in the whole of the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this say, Come. And let anyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. The Spirit says come. The Bride says come. Let, those, let anyone who hears say come. The Spirit says come through God's word. The gospel message in God's word goes out into the world. And it calls people to trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to the source of life. Come to where you can have your sins forgiven. Right through the scriptures, we see this message of forgiveness. Like in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. The Spirit says, come. And so to the bride, the church says, come. The church calls people to trust in Jesus by faith. As we take the gospel out to others, as we take God's word, as we share in conversation, as we produce literature, as we put things on the internet, we are calling people to turn to Jesus to come to him we're calling out with the spirit to accept this wonderful gift of salvation to simply turn to Jesus the spirit and the bride say come so too let the one who hears say come those who are unbelievers and who hear this call and who trust in Jesus in turn they they say come those who have found Christ invite others to come to Christ have each of us heard this call of the gospel has each of us responded to this call of the gospel all we need to do is come to him as we are we don't need to bring anything 
We don't need to bring our good works. We don't need to bring our religion. We don't need to bring our ability. We don't need to bring anything with us. We don't bring our sins. We leave them at the cross. We don't even bring our good works that we think are, we can present to God. We leave them at the cross as well. We simply come to him. There's nothing we can do to deserve or earn this. We simply come as we are. There's nothing can stop us. It doesn't matter how much we have sinned. It doesn't matter how much we have done. There's more than enough forgiveness in the cross of Christ for all that you or I might have done, that all that you or I have done. There's more forgiveness in the cross of Christ than there are sins in the world. There is an abundant supply of forgiveness. Don't let the depth of your sin make you think that it's too much. There is more forgiveness in the cross than you could ever sin. If you've heard the call of God to come to him, to receive eternal blessing from him, then just accept that call and trust in Christ. And you will be blessed you will be fulfilled. You will have a longing for the promises of God, eternity to come, a new creation, a new world where there will be no more death, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. And instead of being apprehensive about Christ's return, you will long for him to come soon. If you're thirsty, Anyone who is thirst, anyone who is in need, come and take of the water of life. It's a free gift. It's offered without conditions, without price. We don't have to give anything in return. We just have to receive Jesus into our lives. We have to turn towards him, turning from our sin, from all that is wrong and sinful, and, and just drink from the water of life. Receive the Spirit of God Become a new person. Become a new person with a new life, a spiritual life. Coming to life again, being born again, as John records in his gospel, the words of Jesus. A fresh start. Drink from the water of life, the water of holiness. And even though that might not be something that we will have as much as we would like here and now because we still struggle with sin. We can know that and walk in the Spirit. We can know and experience the the power of God working in and through us as we look forward to Christ coming again soon when we will have that freely and abundantly without sin getting in the way any longer. The Gospel message is God's loving call And it goes out, the Spirit calls people to come. The church calls people to come. Those who come call others to come. You don't need to be spiritual enough to receive it or religious enough or good enough to deserve it. The gospel is the offer of eternal life simply to anyone who wishes, to anyone who is thirsty. If you haven't done so before, place your faith in Jesus. He is the Alpha Alpha and the Omega. He is the bright morning star. 
He is the one who is the fulfillment of all the hopes of mankind. Anything else that you're chasing after will not save, will not fulfill. Only Christ. Here we have in Revelation chapter 22 a double call to come. It's a call to come to Jesus as well as a call for Jesus to come to us. And with hearts that if you know that you're already accepted, if you've trusted in Christ, well, we can look forward with confidence that he won't be coming with a frown on his face towards us, but he'll be coming with a smile on his face. And he'll look into each of our faces with a smile and we will look into his and we will be rejoicing and we will be with him forever come Lord Jesus amen come Lord Jesus let's pray Lord we do not deserve anything from your hand let alone salvation let alone eternal life Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us in the cross. We thank you for this wonderful gospel simply to come. You have done it all for us. You have atoned for sin. You give us new life in the Holy Spirit. You have prepared a place. Lord, you just ask us to come. And so, Lord, we come simply trusting that Jesus is the Saviour. Jesus is the one, the only true God. And we come, Lord, longing for you to come. We pray that you will come soon, Lord. May our hearts be longing for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.